everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. And today we have author and paramedic Kevin Hazard is with us today. Uh, he has been the author of a couple very important books in EMS, uh, some of which you may have heard of, uh, Thousand Naked Strangers, and specifically, uh, we're going to talk about American Sirens today. So Kevin, welcome to the show. Uh, give us a little bit of your background and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, first of all, thanks for having me on, guys. Really appreciate it. Um, so, you know, I was a paramedic here in Atlanta for about 10 years. Uh, worked most of that time at Grady, um, which is the 911 provider for the city, but also, you know, the big uh, trauma center, public hospital, burn unit, you know, the whole, the whole thing here. Um, and, you know, like you said, I, I wrote A Thousand Naked Strangers based on that experience, which you know, I just felt like we all have such great senses of humor and live in such a strange, dark <laughs> world. I was like, man, where is the, where's the Fargo version of ambulance life? You know, that's the one that I know, like, you know, like two people, you know, at 3 a.m. standing over this body that they're going to have to turn around and tell the family is not workable. And yet, like somebody's making a joke about, you know, what the guy, what color pants the guy's wearing or something. So I wanted, I wanted that version. <laughs> that was true. that one. <laughs> You know, I wanted the one that like honored all the people that I love so much in the job. Um, and so in terms of American Sirens, you know, that that was sort of like one of those uh, reader suggestion kind of thing. Somebody sent me an email at some point in 2018 and said, you know, hey, I read your book, you know, great. Um, but, you know, like I, re I heard your story. Do you know like the story, the origin story? Have you ever heard of this thing? And I hadn't. Uh, so I started looking around and I think that was August of 2018 and I kind of, I, I kept waiting, you know, I thought like, Oh, at any moment I'm going to come across a definitive, you know, 8,000 word article that was written in 84 about these guys that, that tells the whole story of who they were and what this thing was. Cause you know, I kept getting tiny bits and pieces. So I didn't find it. Uh, you know, as, as most people are aware, you know, you go through paramedic school and you, you spend, you know, a night learning about the Napoleonic Wars. You know, because Napoleon, you know, instituted the, the you know, the triage system. And he, he, he was the first one to start transporting soldiers off the field quickly to the hospital. And so you learn that bit, but you don't learn this other thing that happened, you know, that, that, that there was a choke point in 1965 that nobody had a great answer for. Um, and then somebody comes along with a great answer. And it's not only a great answer, but told in, I don't know, if there's a more American story than this one i'm not sure what like innovation um adversity racism frustration like ultimate six like true success um it, it's as Amer literally as american a story as it gets and also that it was forgotten also feels about as american a story as it gets about as american as it gets exactly yeah well and, and that's you know we, we've talked about um different conflicting societal problems on the show we've talked about race we've talked about income inequality and it, it, i think we're as a society we're all starting to notice how it affects us individually and collectively um something that i thought was very striking just in in my reading was there's so many things that it feels like we're having a lot of the same arguments over and over again where you know reading through because you you do a very good job in the book early on explaining like hey this is the these are the origins of ems right we all go through medic school emt school we're taught about the white paper 
you know, and it's like, oh, well, it turns out we can probably reduce mortality from motor vehicle accidents. I don't know that we're taught about the Napoleonic Wars and, and triage and like that. But you also do a very good job in the book of explaining history, um, which I, I really liked because I think it's very important because if you don't know where you're coming from, you don't know where you're going to go. Um, but but I, I'm impressed where you know, the white paper comes out, we have accidental de death and disability. And then you have someone like Peter Saffer who comes along and they're like, well, no one's doing it the way that it should be done. So I'm just, uh, I'm going to go ahead and do that. That's uh, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, you do a great job of explaining how Saffer was just kind of like, yeah, we're going to do EMS now. And I, a lot of the stories that we get, and and maybe this comes down to cultural societal whitewashing is, you know, well, the white paper comes out and then we just started doing EMS and now we're good at it. And it, it tends to kind of gloss over really important things. And again, I, I think that that's something that it was kind of missed with the Freedom House story is, you know, and just just the the John Moore story throughout the book where, you know, I I see someone who's impressive and I want to be like him. I want to garner the kind of respect in the hospital that they were, that they have earned. Um, and it's, it's a very, very interesting story. So I, I do want to get into the details of it, but just for the audience, give them a kind of a quick breakdown and synopsis of what, what Freedom House was and then what it meant to you as you were going through the writing process. Yeah. So, I mean, the down and dirty is basically, you know, as you said, uh, 65 white paper comes out and there's a collective recognition that something is wrong. Like, you know, people, people were aware, but I think seeing it in black and white, you know, is always drives a point home. So there's an understanding that, Hey, there's something that needs to be done, but there's not a, th there's no impetus to get, get it done. You know, there's no mandate that is sent out. There's no, there's no path forward. Essentially it's like, Hey, there's a huge problem. There it is. So it, you know, it sort of takes a genius and luckily, you know, the story had a genius, Peter, Peter Saffer's, you know, he's, he's at the heart of this thing. And, you know, as you said, he father of CPR. So, you know, back up a decade, he's, he's in Baltimore and, you know, he's this Austrian born anesthesiologist who comes to the U S following the end of world war II, trained as a surgeon, realized immediately that surgery has been around a long time. And there's this brand new field of anesthesiology, which if you want to be a groundbreaker, like you go to the new place, right? You don't go to the thing that's been around for hundreds of years. And in his anesthesiology work, he comes across two things. One is just how ridiculous our attempts at rescue breathing are. Um, at that point, what you do is you flop someone face down on the ground, you press in their shoulder blades and you kind of flop their arms around like, like you would a Turkey. And he knows that one, like that doesn't work. Um, but then he also had come across this paper by a doctor by the name of Elam, E-L-A-M, Elam, Elam, that said that expired air had enough oxygen to keep you alive. And he had kind of figured that might be the case, but he was now proof. You know, this was the peer reviewed piece of evidence that suggested that, that this was true. Cause there were a lot of people in the, in the early fifties who thought, well, if I breathe into your mouth, I'm just going to kill you with my, my carbon dioxide. So, you know, one Saffer knows that's a load and two, he knows what we're doing um, in lieu of that is also a load. So he says, the hell with it. I'm going to do this thing on my own. So he's got no backing. He's got no money. Nobody believes in what he's going to do except for a handful of doctors. He gets a, uh, an operating room at Baltimore city hospital because they don't operate on a weekend. So he gets an empty operating room and he tells a bunch of nursing and, uh, medical students and, and residents and fellows that, Hey, um, I'm going to 
sedate you and then I'm going to paralyze you and you're going to lie on the floor for eight hours of time <laughs> over a series of 40 uh, different experiments. And I'm going to hook you up to a bunch of machines that are going to measure just how ineffective our rescue breathing is. In, a, in essence, like, I'm going to let you die uh, and I'm going to record it. And then just before you know, we start shoveling dirt on your grave, I'm going to trot over a Boy Scout who has no idea what to do. I'm going to give him a 30 second demonstration and he's going to keep you alive. He's going to be the reason that you don't die today. And, you know, sort of miraculously, people are like, yes, sign me up. I'll, I will do that test. And <laughs> since then, we stand and we still do that to medical students and nursing students today. It's just much more metaphorical. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, people signed on because I think one, you, you know, I, I think, you know, true genius is rare and people recognize it when they see it. Um, and two, it was it was so clear what he said that, you know, people believed him. So anyhow, short story, he proves it. Uh, CPR becomes a thing. He incorporates chest compressions and single-handedly, quite literally single-handedly, this man in his thirties um, invented CPR could have retired right then and been a wild success. And, and we all would have sort of, you know, celebrated his life, but you know, I guess this is not how innovators work. And so he keeps going. Um, he helps invent the modern ICU. He will eventually, you know, in two decades time, uh, lead the world in resuscitative research, the sort of, you know, cooling that, that is, is goes on today. He, he pioneers that work nominated three times the Nobel prize in medicine, but he moves to Pittsburgh to start an anesthesiology department at university of Pitt. You know, UPMC is, is, is sort of a medical juggernaut, you know, ever since, Falk went there and, you know, I mean, organ transplants and, and, uh, you know, heart valve replacements, obviously the, the, uh, polio vaccine. Well, they bring in, you know, this sort of magnet of, of medical brains attracts Peter Saffer. He goes to start an anesthesiology department and the white paper comes out. And so Saffer is, you know, Saffer being Saffer, he's like, well, this is eminently fixable. Um, develops a paramedic curriculum at a time when the word paramedic does not exist. He doesn't coin the phrase, but the phrase doesn't exist. Um, he develops a curriculum, which, you know, if you sit down and read what he was thinking of, it's as intense as anything we went through in the early 2000s. I mean, it, it, this is, you know, it's eight months, it eventually stretches into nine months. Um, that then goes into once the classroom period's over with, they go into the OR, the ER, the ICU, they go to OB, they go to the morgue to watch autopsies. If you did it, they did it, um, and maybe plus. And um, so it's this incredible idea that he's got. The problem is he has no people, you know, like he, he, the paramedics. Again, they don't exist. People have tried doctors. They've tried nurses. Um, they've tried simply using drivers. None of it's ever worked. So nobody really knows what to do. And across town, there's a neighborhood called the Hill District. The Hill District is... I mean, I mean, the Hill District is Watts. It is Harlem. It is Chicago's South Side. It's it's any of those, uh, you know, predominantly black neighborhoods in big urban areas um, that for a thousand reasons, and the book gets into all of them, and we have time today, we can discuss some of them if you want. But, you know, for a lot of reasons, um, the Hill District is is a place of hopelessness, you know, and, you, you know, the sort of the, the most proximate cause is urban renewal. Um, which, you know, tore down a huge percentage of the neighborhood, left 8,000 people essentially homeless, forced them to sort of squeeze into an overcrowded area. And, you know, uh, jobs go away, 
education goes away, opportunity goes away, and what's left in its place is hopelessness. And that's that's the Hill District in the mid-1960s. Um, and there's an organization called Freedom House started by uh, a civil rights activist by the name James McCoy, who who recognized that the only thing that people in the Hill needed was an opportunity. You know, he was a, he was a black man from the South that moved to the North, um, became a labor organizer, starts Freedom House as a jobs training program. But, you know, he's got all these people, but doesn't have great jobs, at least certainly not the sort of inspirational jobs that someone can make a career out of and be proud of themselves. So he's looking around for this right training opportunity. And a third man by the name of Phil Hallen sort of is the bridge. You know, Phil sees the hole in the medical system. He also sees the hole in the employment um, opportunity for people living in this area. And he says, well, here are all these people. And here's this need um, getting people to the hospital. Let's bring them together. So Saffer and Helen McCoy sit down and, you know, in sort of a single creative burst, the paramedic essentially is born, you know, um, Saffer lays out what he wants to do. I mean, the guy literally like, you know, prior to this time, as people probably know, cities EMS services are run by the police, volunteer firefighters or the funeral home. Right. So either <laughs> the funeral home bit is always my favorite thing. <laughs> I mean, God. The fact that like you're, you're dying and what shows up in your moment of need is a hearse with flower petals trailing out right? of the back. Like, I mean, think about that. Like well, they, <laughs> they stand to make a whole lot more money if they let you die than if they do their job well, and, and save you. And you make a really good point about it in the book or like a, a funeral home comes up to get you and they're like, well, we can turn right to the hospital or if we give it enough time, we can, just, <sighs> we can turn left to the funeral home because you catch it, catch them coming, catch them going. The, the interesting thing that I found was the police department, which was the primary ambulance service in Pittsburgh. The story you tell is how poorly they actually did things and their resistance yeah. to any kind of guidance or change. And I see that kind of mirrored. We, we kind of see this same problem happening today um, mm -hmm. in places where, you know, you have somebody who comes out and says, uh, you know, hey guys, we have to change this. Guys, this is this is where we're going, and this is what the science says. And you still have people saying, "Nope, nope, this is how we're going to do it." Um, yeah. And you see the police department and the and the politicians in this book really become the adversaries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so you know to sort of put a cap on the story, these two groups join. Off it goes, paramedicine as we know it instantly takes off. And of course, because the original group selected to do this training and to do this job are black men, they get a ton of pushback. And that's really where the In story America? becomes. Right. <laughs> that's where it becomes this quintessentially American story. Um, but you're right. You know, in, in 1966, this happened in a lot of places, but in 1966, it really happens in, in very dramatic fashion in the city of Pittsburgh. And so, you know, the short version is there's a, uh, there, there's a politician by the name of David Lawrence, um, who's at a political rally. He's uh, an incredibly famous and influential figure in, in Pennsylvania and particularly Pittsburgh. And he's about to address this crowd and he keels over with a heart attack. Um, as luck would have it for him, there happens to be a nurse um, in the crowd. Her name is Karen McGuire. She instantly begins CPR cops are summoned because in the city of Pittsburgh, it's the cops who show up. They had a, uh, they drove paddy wagons, which I've recently been told 
um, I shouldn't use the word paddy wagon evidently. And, and for what it's worth, I'm, uh, I'm of Irish descent, but I guess the paddy wagon thing was like drunk Irishmen, like as, as an Irish person or a person of Irish descent, go ahead and use paddy wagon. <laughs> so yeah, that was the, that's the, uh, the origin of that term was like, we're going to scoop up all the junk Irish and toss them in, uh, and toss them in, you know, in a, in a wagon to, uh, to, to bring them down. So that's where paddy wagon comes. So I can, I can imagine my ancestors, you know, uh, picking fights with people and like, like are, are the Irish ancestors, are they going to be upset about the paddy wagon thing? Or are they like, yeah, they probably right. would. Our, my grandfather I had a we, pretty we did bad that. temper when he was young. I'm so I'm sure he'd be like, yeah, you know, I kind of deserved it. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> so, you know, they would, they would cruise in, 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 in a paddy wagon, a wagon and uh, toss you in the back on a, on a military style canvas stretcher and off they would go. If they had training, there wasn't much. If they had equipment, it was even less. So they arrive at the side of uh, David Lawrence, where Karen McGuire is doing CPR. They kind of, you know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, they just basically squeeze her out of the picture, pick up Lawrence, toss him in the back. There's an oxygen canister that's there. Reports differ. It's either broken or empty. So there's no oxygen that can be delivered. They toss him on the stretcher. They drag him outside. They sling him in the back. And Karen McGuire instantly realizes, oh, wait a minute. They're just going to ride with this guy. Like, he's just going to sit in the back. Yeah. So she squeezes in and and does what she can. But the problem is they're, they're speeding and she's in the back of this like large, essentially like a small U-Haul truck. And, uh, and, and she gets tossed around and nothing gets done. So by the time he arrives at the hospital, which is like six minutes, he's brain dead. That night doctors get his heart going. Blood pressure is, is, you know, stabilized and he's brain dead and remains brain dead. Despite the fact that he had immediate CPR, almost the moment he hit the ground, and of course, the reason, as we all know today, uh, you know, is that eight minutes that he went with no care at all killed him. So you can you can revive everything but the brain, um, you know, and that's sort of classic. And, and the, the police, because they were the ones who would run EMS in the city and because those represent jobs, you know, they they really resented the arrival of Freedom House. They 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 resented the idea of training. It wasn't just the police, the fire departments, you know. The book gets into a lot of this stuff, but they got pushed back from fire departments who said, well, wait, hold on a second. Our guys are volunteers. We can't possibly send them through all the training that this is going to require. Police department said, hey, we this is mostly run by guys who are at the end of their career. They're not going to want to do a lot of this training. You know, they're, they're really more cops at heart than they are medical providers. So we don't want to do this. So, you know, there's a lot of pushback in terms of like the technological advances, the cost that it is supposedly going to be um, and, and who's doing it, you know. It does happen in an era in which, you know, I know that it still exists today. And that's kind of, you know, one of the, you know, the sad ironies is that all the problems that happened, you know, that were going on in the forties and the fifties and the sixties and the seventies continue to today. But, you know, um, there was a lot of uh, animosity between the police department and the black population. And so the, that the guys taking their jobs weren't, just taking their jobs and as black men taking their jobs, you know, it adds this extra wrinkle to the entire problem. Um, you know, and it remains a huge fight there, you know, for the, for the entire decade that they're in existence. And just to kind of build out on, you know, current circumstances and previous circumstances, what, what always impresses me is, you know, no matter how much things change, the more they stay the same. 
So, uh, you know, and, and I think it's important to mention, too, with the CPR thing, because we all, I think, kind of take it for granted at this point what CPR is. Like before Peter Saffer came around, CPR, what, like you can find old videos on YouTube of people doing early resuscitation where it's like grabbing people's ankles and pushing it into their torso. Or one of my favorites was, you know, an old 18th or 19th century remedy was taking a bellows and just blowing it into their face, you know, like that kind of stuff. But even I think the concept of just going to the hospital as it, and we've talked about it on the show a lot where like the door of the hospital is not a magical threshold where, you know, you right. just run to the hospital and dump them off and then you're good to go. And it's, it's interesting reading this story, you know, from the sixties of like, Oh, well, someone dropped on stage. It was early CPR done. They were rushed to the hospital and there was a negative outcome. And it seems to be like, we're, we're still doing that in 2022. Um, but yeah, I, let, let's get into Freedom House. Let's let's talk about how that was actually built in the program that that became essentially the you know first functioning EMS system. Um, yeah. So we talk and we talked about a little bit about of the origins of that, but talk about the the fear of the fire departments, the police losing their jobs, and how to get people into the system and how it actually built out. Yeah. So you know, there's a couple different um, arguments against it when when it comes up. So. <clears throat> Saffer proposes this thing, and he had been proposing it. The death of Lawrence really becomes the moment at which people are like, okay, fine. We're going to you know, at least allow you to do this in a couple of different black neighborhoods. Freedom House never expands beyond the Hill District, Oakland, or downtown. Those are their three venues, even though they tried to push into other parts of town. You know, I mean, it, these things exist today, you know. Fire departments still push back on EMS departments, uh, volunteer and and private and hospital based and fire based. Like these are all still fights. These fights continue today. So those are fights. Then people were concerned about how much it would cost. They were, you know, there was an argument that it was un-American. Um, if you think about this for a moment, we provide fire service, or the city does. We provide police service, but the idea of providing medical service under the same model. The argument is, well, that's going to open the door to socialized medicine, and therefore, it's un-American. I mean, they're literally saying because the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, I mean, how often do you hear this? You know, like you, you brought up like 1832. There's a cholera epidemic in London, and people are resisting the idea of 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 quarantining these people because, like, oh, oh, this is all just a government conspiracy. What they're really trying to do is steal your uh, loved ones so they can take their organs. Like, I feel like that's 2020 all over again. Um, you know, except it's modern, right? So it's a chip. It's not, you know, they're not, um, they're not, I think they called it burking. They're, they're not burking you. They're, they're chipping you. Um, all these things, you know, they're, it's, 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 it's constant. <laughs> John so, Snow was paid by big water pump handle. He was, <laughs> he was in the, he was in that government conspiracy. I, I'd just like to point out that my, I was supposed to die on October 10th. The shot was supposed to turn on and kill me and I'm still here. Yeah. Well, you can thank JFK Jr. for that. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> it was him. Um, so we start yeah, with four, yeah. so we start with forty four men, all yeah. black. Men. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So he starts his program of training them, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the training is astonishingly similar to what a lot of places we get today. It's the same rotations. It's the same stuff. Um, there's a really good uh, part in the book where you talk where they. Um, where uh, I believe it's John Moon is intubating a patient in the operating theater with Saffer and everybody looking at him. And he remember he's telling the story and he's being just, he's so nervous about it. And I think every paramedic has been in that position, but for this, for this group, it's so much more acute 
because of who they are, because of where they came from and where Freedom House grabbed them from. So, yeah, you know, by design, these guys are from, you know, the Hill District. By design, they are black men. This is the 1960s. So by design, um, you know, you're not talking about people with huge educations or, you know, awesome career prospects. These are people who are, you know, who have agreed to put their lives on hold for a job that technically does not yet exist. So they, you know, they're, they're more or less dragged off the street because they don't know what this thing is. It's not an easy recruiting pitch, um, but they, they jump into it. And, you know, this program is supposed to be eight months. It eventually goes nine months. Uh, um, you know, it's 300 plus hours. There's a lot of question about who's the first EMS system. I mean, I looked around. Los Angeles comes about a year later and they have 180 hours. Uh, San Francisco came about the same time. They have 400 and something hours, but they were almost entirely, I mean, they're, they're cardiac focused. So there are little things that would pop up here and there, but nobody had the broad spectrum of what we would consider a paramedic um, that began in 67. So these guys, you know, are, are the first to go through this training program. They finish the classroom portion. They, they, you know, they go to the morgue, they go to the ICU, um, they have trouble with OB. They, the, the nurses simply will not l- let them in. They have to learn how to deliver babies by videotape because, uh, or I guess, I don't know what real to real would have been the sixties. And, and just so we're clear, we, we are still talking about 1967, not 2022. Yeah. That's certainly not happening now. OB is very excited to have medic students in, <laughs> in the <laughs> units. Yeah. Um, they go to the ER nurses hand them mops because they think they're orderlies. So, you know, they're, they are, um, overcoming, you know, obstacles from, from day one, they're supposed to go down to the city of Baltimore to do riding with Baltimore fire department. That's where Saffer had, you know, had, had done CPR. And so he had, he had a relationship with the city of Baltimore fire department. That's where they're supposed to be. April 4th, 1968 happens. You know, the entire city or the entire country goes crazy. Pittsburgh is no exception. Um, The uprising in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. changes everything. And so they have to come back and begin working early. Um, And, you know, from the jump, it's an unmitigated success. You know, tests are done fairly early on. Um, They they look at the run reports and they see that with critical patients, 78% of the time, volunteer fire departments do the wrong thing. 60% 60% of the time, police department does the wrong thing. 80% of the time, Freedom House does the right thing. And these are in critical patients where it, their presence really matters. So their success from day one, they are uh, bits and pieces of them are taken and modeled in cities across America, across the world. They go to a symposium in Mainz, Germany with this collection of ICU doctors, uh, you know, critical care, ICU uh, ED is not really a thing at that point. So it's, you know, it's just, it, it, it's just, you know, physicians, surgeons and physicians from around the world. And what they, what they determine after this symposium is, okay. And, and again, this is based on, on what Freedom House presents them with. They say, okay, in, in the street with a critical patient, there's no drop off between a properly trained and equipped paramedic and a physician. So this is what these guys do for a group of people that did not have high school educations largely. Um, they certainly had no medical background that were, you know, some of them were Vietnam war veterans who were back and unemployed. Some of them were in between jobs. Some of them had simply uninspiring jobs, but they upended their lives, um, took a huge risk on a career that again, technically did not exist. It didn't really have a title. 
and went out and showed the world exactly how it needed to be done. And we still do it that way today. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting thing you, you talk about ordinary people with uninspiring jobs. Um, I think the story of John Moon, uh, the, um, orderly became becoming a paramedic his journey uh you've you've kind of outlined in the book and he kind of represents the every man of freedom house this is this is the guy he's working at the hospital as an orderly um his journey um i thought was so interesting about how he you know his his journey to gain respect and that he got that respect um and the grace he showed was just astonishing for for someone like me reading that story it it just it really spoke to me can you talk a little bit about john and his his path yeah i mean look grace is the right answer um over and over again as i research a story i mean that's the word i kept coming back to i don't know how else you can describe a group of people who did what they did in the face of what they were up against um and to do it but with, uh, with such care and, and, and uh, it's just, it's great. There's just no other word for it. So, you know, if, if there's a, if there's a classically American story, you know, I, I think once upon a time we would have, you know, talked about the immigrant who comes to the U S you know, penniless and, and, you know, becomes JP Morgan, you know, John is, he's a modern day version of that story. He's born in a neighborhood of Atlanta that doesn't understand born in 19, um, 1949, this is a guy who grew up in the early fifties in one of America's major cities in a neighborhood that by design did not have water or electricity. Um, you know, I mean, in literally dead center of, of city of Atlanta. And he lives in a neighborhood that does not have running water. Um, his mother dies. He winds up in an orphanage and gets adopted by family. He didn't know he had gets brought to, um, Pittsburgh and not just any part of Pittsburgh, but to the Hill district, which again, you know, the Hill District was, uh, you know, this this incredible neighborhood um, up and up through the 40s. Um, you know, it was very much like Harlem. It was full of jazz clubs, people like Lena Horne and Louis Armstrong. Anybody who's anybody goes through this place. It's known as the crossroads of the West. Um, it is it is, you know, this huge cultural center had three or excuse me, had two Negro League baseball teams, Satchel Page was a pitcher from one of them. August Wilson grew up there, you know, the, his cycle plays, I mean, this was an incredible place and urban renewal, which, you know, provides highways, provides universities, provides medical systems. The flip side to that, of course, is that those things need to go somewhere. And very oftentimes where they went were minority neighborhoods where there was just not enough political power to stop it. Um, and that neighborhood gets scraped down to the, to the dirt. Um, 8,000 people displaced almost overnight. So, you know, it is a neighborhood that is having a lot of, uh, a lot of trouble. And, um, you know, that's where, that's where he grows up and very easily could have, you know, gone the wrong way and, and been a statistic, but, you know, he's driven by all these things he's come through. He sees these challenges as opportunities to prove himself to a world that refuses to accept him for what he believes himself to be, which is a person with just as much potential as anybody else gets himself a job, works six days a week, just so that he can have a different, you know, uh, outfit to wear to school. Initially, you know, when he was a kid, he would show up um, every day in the same set of clothes. So of course he's like the hell with that. You know, I'm wearing something new every day and it's like alpaca sweaters and gold lame jackets. And, you know, I mean, he's flat. It's, it's the sixties. He's flashy as hell. But then in the, the wake of the, uh, the, you know, 
King's assassination, you know, sort of violence all over the country, he realizes like, you know, the set of clothes don't make the man there. You know, I need, I need respect from the people around me. And that means respect from the larger community, the white community. Yes. I don't have that right now. Like, how do we get that? And for the people involved, paramedicine, being a paramedic is their way to get respect. It's a way for that. The, it is the thing that the world's not going to be able to ignore in this strange job in the back of this ambulance doing this, this, this crazy thing that again, like we know it now, but they didn't know it then. Um, that this is how the world is going to know my name. This is how the world is going to hear my voice. Um, and he, you know, he, he saw two medics walk through a hospital one night and he just knew, he knew by the way they carried themselves. He knew by the way that people interacted with them, that, that this was the thing. And so he throws himself into it and he refuses to be turned back from it. And the more people I talk to who, who were part of this, you know, even if they didn't come out and say it, it was always in the subtext of their reasonings for joining EMS, for becoming a paramedic. Um, you know, this was the thing the world wasn't going to be able to ignore. Something I think you you go through pains to the book to point out is is the the pride thing that I think is very important um, to a lot of the providers that that went to the Freedom House project. And it, you mentioned the you know urban renewal. Um, and it, there's a very good section in the book that talks about what is essentially eminent domain. Um, where you know they're taking low-income neighborhoods and essentially eliminating. There's a whole passage about um, the building of Chavez Ravine in Los Angeles for uh, the new Dodger Stadium, where it was a whole housing project that was just raised essentially for a baseball stadium. Um, but it, it's something that I think is is very interesting the the social aspect of being in a position that it, it, at least externally looks like it commands respect is something that I think still in 2022 is something that we're sort of missing a little bit. I think that there's, you know, there is a, a certain respect level, but I wonder if it's gotten to the point where we expect it, you know, mm -hmm. as opposed to um, sort of like sit in reverence of it. But I was very impressed with like, okay, I'm, I'm in this position in my life and these are people that have important jobs and can do important things. It was, it was very impressive to me to read through it and have someone say, you know, like, okay, I, I want to build toward this because I see it as a respectable profession, um, which I, I think is something that can kind of get lost when you're in the field for a long time, because, you know, you get that availability bias, right? You're sitting in the muck and, you know, you've had your, your fifth, you know, patient that's urinated on themselves in four hours. And I, I think he, that because we don't see the glamor of it, we, we might tend to lose some of that, but I, it, it's nice to be reminded like, no, this is a position that does actually command respect and that it is an important thing. And, you know, seeing someone from a low income background saying like, this is my opportunity out was very inspiring to me when I was reading it. Yeah, that is a huge part of this entire thing is, you know, we're, you know, we are inventing this incredibly important thing. Um, and, you know, a lot of, of the challenges that they face the reason that they're facing them is because it is successful. You know, you don't have to go out of your way to tear down a, you know, a dilapidated house, right? It, it almost falls over by itself, but something with a strong foundation that clearly is usable, like you really got to put effort to knock that thing down. So a lot of the fight that they go through and, and there's a big, you know, there's a lot of, of fighting that comes their way. Um, is the fact that that this thing is successful and so successful and so good and people are seeing it's good you know they're they're contained largely to black neighborhoods although they do work downtown which creates its own problems because now they have to you know treat white patients and you know one of the things i found so fascinating is 
you know, there are all these covenants, housing covenants that are put in place. And, and you, that just feels so old, but yet in the 1970s, they were just being removed. And so you had people who worked downtown that lived in neighborhoods where covenants had just been removed and people are spite selling their homes to black families because, oh, I don't like my neighbor. So I'm going to sell my home to a black neighbor to punish him to like, you know, so it, it's so odious a thing to live next to a black family that they would spite sell a house. And yet now they're downtown, they're having a heart attack and through the door walks two black men. Um, the reason that you, you, you fight through all those things and you don't just walk away and that you, you convince someone who's having a heart attack and doesn't want you to touch them because she's a white woman and you're a black man. The reason you fight to that moment is because you realize the importance of what you're doing. Um, and you're right. It's very easy now to look back and, and, but you know, in 73, when, when emergency hits the airwaves, the reason that show is such a seminal moment for this profession that we all, you know, owe so much to is because the world didn't know. And instantly, you know, it was like, Oh my, there it is. There's that's, that's it. Well, and that's it's, it. it's another fairly stark example too, of you have the groundwork that's laid by, you know, minorities and by black people. And the first visualization people get of it is two corn fed white guys going out to call for orders to give, to start an IV and give dextrose. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it, I, it's always very interesting to me to see that where it's like, well, there was, there was the original thing that happened in reality. And then there's what people saw. And, you know, people see like there, we still have medics today that saw Johnny and Roy running out and, you know, using rubber, rubber tourniquets and all that. Well, other most, kind of stuff. most people will say that Johnny and Roy were the first paramedics. They weren't. And this yeah. is one of the interesting a, things. They, they were characters on a TV show. <laughs> this is, well, even if you look at the Los Angeles County Fire Department, if you look at Miami, if you look at Seattle, a lot of these places, Freedom mm -hmm. House was first because they were driven. There was a lot of people that were driven that wanted this to happen. And I know we're coming up on, uh, we're going to be coming up on a hard out, but I want to talk about one person who throughout the book, when they get introduced, was just so driven and single-minded um, and partially because of their own, the prejudices against them. Um, talk about Nancy Caroline. We all yeah. know the name from the textbook she wrote, um, but this, this is the first time I actually read in depth about the woman and about the doctor and her mindset. And I was stunned. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> How, how, so can you speak to a little bit about Nancy Caroline and how central she is to this, this whole program and how, you know, she had her own fight against dis discrimination and her own fights in her world of getting her own respect. And she takes on freedom house. Yeah. So, I mean, boy, I mean, Nan, everybody in this book, this is why it's so hard to talk about the subject. Everybody in this book is deserving of, of a Russian novel. Um, you, you know, <laughs> Nancy is this incredible, uh, figure, you know, she graduates high school early. She goes to Radcliffe, um, because at that time Harvard did not accept women. So Radcliffe is, is, is the women's version of Harvard. She gets out, she goes to Case Western Medical University in Ohio, which is sort of, um, medicine's answer to eccentricity. Um, she was never, you know, she couldn't keep her mind contained to one thing. So like she would leave and go and do, you know, she would make a movie or she would go and, and study somewhere. And she, but she kept returning to medicine. She gets a fellowship after um, her residency in Pittsburgh and she arrives. She has no idea 
no idea what an ambulance is or what a paramedic is or what any of that is, but she gets roped into EMS. This is a, uh, a young Jewish woman who, you know, it, it earned a lot of accolades, but would always be referred to as like the little woman with a big job or a pixie. I mean, just these like incredibly insulting things for a physician who, you know, wrote the textbook that decades later people would, would use or who went to Israel and started their national EMS program, started Israel's hospice program, worked for years in East Africa as one of AMRES flying doctors. I mean, she's just an incredible person. She lands in Pittsburgh. Saffer ropes her into this because essentially nobody else will take this job. Um, she takes it and instantly realizes I have no connection to these men. They have no connection to me. You know, I'm a well-to-do white Jewish woman from Massachusetts. These are, you know, low income black guys from Pittsburgh. I don't know how we're going to bridge this gap, but of course she's like a, a more than anything. She's, she's a human. She's a flawed human. She has her own problems. She, um, she was in a relationship, a serious relationship with a man who, while shortly after she arrived, he kills himself. She's in a very dark place. She's not sure she even wants to continue with medicine, but she's accepted this job and she's so incredibly driven and she has no idea how to do this job that she says, well, then fine. Then I'm just going to sleep here. I'm going to go on every call with them. I'm going to learn what they do. I'm going to learn what they're doing wrong, what they're doing right and how I can help them. And through this vulnerability that she has, um, through this determination that she has, they recognize bits of themselves, right? They have vulnerability. They have determination. They understand that there's nowhere else to go, that this, this is the spot and I've got to figure out how to make this work. And it's that shared connection that brings Freedom House to its, you know, highest level. I mean, and that's, and ultimately that's what's so wonderful. You know, it's like, it's Freedom House. It's, it's a medical story, I guess, to a degree, but this group of people who who do this thing, who who create this piece of history, um, are able to do so through a human connection, and then it's always really what stories are about. That's what movies are about. What books are about. The stories that we tell one another. It's always about human connection. It's not like did we go to the moon? No. It's that like a group of people were on their way to the moon. There something goes wrong with their spaceship. They radio Houston that they've got a problem. And now all these people have to come together like to save a couple of human lives. I mean, that's always what it comes down to. And it's at the heart of the story is human connection. Nancy Caroline makes a connection with the paramedics of Freedom House and in so doing allows them to become the national standard. Um, you know, they are selected to field test, to design and field test the nation's first standardized training program. The result of that is emergency care in the streets which we use for decades. Um, and though nobody knows their names, very few people have heard of their organization. Freedom House is the reason that so many of us were trained the way that they were. Um, I mean, yeah, Nancy Caroline is pivotal to the story. Uh, it's, and it's, I mean, it's great. <laughs> it's a great story. I, that was, that was the, the most impressive part of all this to me is the, that, like we we do know who Nancy Caroline is. We've all read Emergency Care in the Streets, and you know, we're all aware of that. the The availability of the Freedom House story, or I should say, the lack of availability of it, was something that was impressive to me. I had heard about it sort of anecdotally, but I don't know that this the story before your book was was very well elucidated to a lot of the people in the industry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like I I think that you know maybe we were somewhat aware of it. Everyone kind of knows Pittsburgh's reputation. Um, among EMS. I'm just not sure if they knew that it was Freedom House. So, but we are coming up on a hard out, Kevin. I want to give you the last word. If you, and I guess having people read this story, I want to know what was the, 
I guess, what do you think was the most interesting thing that you learned while researching it? And what is one big takeaway that you want people to get from the book? I mean, the most interesting thing was also the saddest thing, which is that nothing changes, <clears throat> you know, whether it's uh, 1832, 1972 or 2022, um, we're, we, we have the same problems. Um, these things uh, continue to, uh, you know, w whether it's people refusing to believe that the latest medical innovation is a real thing um, or, or prejudices that, that people, you know, that we have against one another, um, the way that certain people are held down and, and the extra mile that they have to go to sort of get just to where we could get very easily. Um, those things are real. They're not distant history. Um, and there are people who are still dealing with that today. And I think that need, like, we need to remember that we need to stay on top of that. We need to make sure that, you know, we understand the challenges people are up against. Um, the greatest takeaway is that in the face of that, this is not, you know, a sad story. This is an inspiring story. The things that, that, allowed these guys to succeed are the things that allow all of us to succeed, you know, a sense of determination, pride in what they do, resiliency, refusal to be pushed around or to be told no, you know, like they brought that to the job and then they carried it on with them. You know, a lot of these guys went on to do really good things. John Moon becomes an assistant chief. Uh, Mitch Brown, you know, goes on to uh, be the public safety director in both Cleveland and Columbus and becomes a state politician over there. You had masters, you had PhDs, you had doctors. This is a program that created a lot of really good providers. A lot of really good people came out of it because a lot of really good people went into it. And, um, you know, that is, it, it's a story of human triumph. I mean, that's, that is their legacy. That I is their legacy. I think that's a great way to end it. Uh, their legacy is something that we need to pick up and kind of carry forward. And the determination that we have to have to do this job and do it better is because of them. Uh, Kevin Hazard, I want to thank you for being on the show. Um, the book is American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. Uh, it's a phenomenal story. Uh, even if you're not a reader, I you know, and you're listening to this, go out and get this book and read it and learn about our past and maybe learn how to address our future. Uh, so for the overrun, I'm Dan Schwester. And I'm Ed Bowder, and we will talk to you all next time. Get home safe.